Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we had a short presentation given by one of our PGY-1 residents, Max Berger, on the role of steroids in the management of lumbar radiculopathy. I thought this was an interesting question to discuss for the podcast, but that we could also use it as an opportunity to discuss a bit about lumbar radiculopathy and back pain in general. Let's start by defining what lumbar radiculopathy is. Basically, this is nerve root irritation in the lumbar region. This typically results from a herniated disc, but there are other causes including spinal stenosis, malignancy, and infection like an epidural abscess. The pain experienced here is typically described as burning, sharp, or shooting, and it's going to start in the back and radiate down in the distribution of the affected nerve. For instance, with an L5-S1 radiculopathy, the patient will experience pain radiating down the back of the ipsilateral leg past the knee. The L5-S1 nerve root irritation is most commonly known as sciatica, and this is the most common nerve root compression that patients will present with. Before we delve into the use of steroids and lumbar radiculopathy, I think it's helpful to discuss a bit about dangerous versus benign causes of back pain. Jonathan Edlow wrote an excellent review on the management of atraumatic back pain in annals back in 2015, and I think this is a must-read for EM providers, and I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. He separates non-traumatic acute back pain into three categories, simple or benign causes, serious causes, and non-spine-related causes. Within the benign group are the muscular and ligamentous strains, isolated sciatica, and spinal stenosis. Amongst the serious causes are metastatic disease, infection-related, like epidural abscess, vertebral osteomyelitis, and infectious discitis, as well as spinal epidural hematoma and central disc herniation causing cauda equina. Finally, there's that non-spine-related causes, and this includes things like AAA, renal colic, pyelonephritis, pancreatitis, and a host of other diseases. One of the key things is to be able to differentiate the serious back pain from the benign causes. This is mainly going to be based on your history and will involve a list of questions which attempts to elicit whether the patient has any red flag symptoms for that back pain. If they do, we have to carefully consider those more serious causes. Everyone has a slightly different list of red flags, but they mostly overlap. Here's the list that I have. Age over 55 or under 19, pain that is greater at night or at rest, presence of neurologic symptoms including weakness and numbness, bilateral symptoms, immunosuppression, IV drug use, fever or night sweats, history of cancer, anticoagulant use, and change in bowel or bladder function. A couple of these deserve a little bit more clarification and special attention. The age cutoff isn't really a hard one. Young adults and kids shouldn't have atraumatic back pain, so be suspicious and make sure to really elicit whether there was any trauma. In older patients, they can have back pain, but it's unusual to suddenly have atraumatic back pain or first-time back pain in a 55-year-old, and so the chance of a dangerous cause is slightly increased. Immunosuppression includes things like HIV and AIDS, poorly controlled diabetes, chronic steroid use, and use of other immunomodulators as seen in rheumatoid arthritis, SLE, and other connective tissue disorders. Lastly, when we talk about bowel or bladder changes, people often ask about incontinence, but you also have to ask about increased tone, urinary retention, or constipation. Often, increase in tone will precede loss of tone. The incontinence that patients experience often results from overflow early on before there's true loss of tone. 
If the patient has red flags, consider those serious diagnoses and consider advanced imaging. It doesn't mean that everyone with these risk factors needs imaging, just that you need to carefully consider whether the patient has enough of a risk that you need to investigate further. Edlow in his article stresses that if you're concerned for a serious pathology, the imaging modality to seek out is MRI, especially if you're looking for the infectious causes. All right, let's get back to the lumbar radiculopathy patient. You go through your exam and your red flags and you don't hit any of them. What you've got is a patient with lumbar radiculopathy who is low risk for any serious causes. In this case, the most likely cause is disc herniation, and now it's our job to manage the pain and get the patient follow-up. Discussion of all the different modalities for pain management goes a bit beyond the scope of this podcast. There are lots of options, and the honest truth is we don't know exactly what works, but starting with an NSAID or acetaminophen seems reasonable. There's some recent evidence in non-radicular acute non-traumatic back pain that opiates do not offer any additional pain relief to an NSAID like naproxen, so a script for an opiate probably isn't going to be that helpful. This brings us back to where we started with steroids. I often see patients with lumbar radiculopathy who come in because they've got a pain flare and they request steroids because they've been treated with them in the past. Looking back, the quality of evidence on this topic is pretty low, but we recently got a pretty good RCT that was published in JAMA on the topic, and we'll drop a link to that article in the show notes. The study enrolled about 270 patients and randomized them two to one to prednisone versus placebo. The primary outcome was a disability index that, while I'm not terribly familiar with, is relatively well accepted in the literature. All the patients had MRIs showing disc disease as the cause of their symptoms. They found a slight improvement in symptoms in the group getting prednisone, but this came with a significant increase in side effects as well. Although the numbers show statistical significance, it's unclear if there's clinical significance here. The authors state that in patients with acute radicular pain from a herniated lumbar disc, there's modest improvement in function with no improvement in pain. How do we apply this to our ED patients? The study wasn't done in the ED, and we typically don't know for sure if a herniated disc is the cause of the pain. Given this limitation, I think it's even less likely that a course of steroids is going to be beneficial for RED patients. And remember, there are side effects here that we have to think about. For now, I'm going to stick with acetaminophen and NSAIDs for pain, perhaps a topical lidocaine or capsaicin patch, and I always, always stress that bed rest won't help. It's better for the patient to get up and move around so they don't get stiff. All right, let's hit the take-home points before we wrap up for the week. Number one, lumbar radiculopathy is a symptom, not a diagnosis. It typically results from disc herniation, but it can result from infectious causes or metastatic disease. In all patients with back pain, take a good history focusing on the red flags. Age over 55 or under 19, pain that is greater at night or at rest, presence of neurologic symptoms including weakness or numbness, bilateral symptoms, immunosuppression, IV drug use, fever or night sweats, history of cancer, anticoagulant use, or change in bowel or bladder function. If the patient has any of these red flags, consider the serious diagnoses and image accordingly. In the patient with non-traumatic acute low back pain where you aren't concerned about a serious pathology, imaging is unlikely to be beneficial in the ED. Prescribe NSAIDs and Tylenol to help mitigate the pain and refer the patient for follow-up. And finally, steroids may have a modest benefit in terms of function in patients with sciatica and a known herniated disc, but the benefit's small, and it doesn't appear from the available evidence that we should be making this a routine part of our management. 
One last plug, check out the link in the show notes to the St. Emlyn's podcast and blog post on this particular topic, which is really fantastic. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the post at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. If you've got a little bit of time, go on over to iTunes and give us a rating. Give us five stars if you like us. Give us one star if you don't. But please leave a comment and tell us what we can do to improve how we produce this podcast. Thanks, and see you all next week.